Good morning and welcome. Good morning and welcome. We uh, welcome all of our guests and visitors, as well as our members who are joining us via the radio and via Facebook. Uh, We continue meeting remotely via live stream. And uh, so I would encourage you, if you are joining us and have not uh, downloaded the order of worship and the lyrics to the music, the the songs that we're going to sing, you can do so on our website, covenantpella.org. And uh, you'll find the button on the right side of the screen, covenantpella.org. Beloved, the Lord calls us to worship this morning. With these words from Isaiah 58 concerning our calling to honor the Lord through the Sabbath day. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and you shall honor Him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord set apart this one day out of the seven of the week that we might worship Him, that we might focus our hearts and our lives upon Him. And it's really a blessing to us to do so. So let me encourage you to spend not just this hour focused on the Lord, but, but throughout this day to set aside all of the daily activities that normally consume us and to focus our hearts and our minds upon Him. To that end, let us pray together for God's blessing. Oh, Father, we thank You. We thank You that You give us the health and the strength to be able to do our work throughout the week. But we thank You too that You have given us this blessed day of rest the day of Jesus' resurrection, the day of the church's worship. And we pray that you, would, that you would give us the commitment and the conviction to set aside all of the work that normally consumes us, to set aside all of the, the concerns that fill our minds and our hearts, and to focus on you through worship, through prayer, through rest, through time with family. And Lord, we pray that you would refresh us indeed. Bless this time of worship, that the word that is proclaimed might be faithfully proclaimed, that the songs that are sung might come from the heart, that we might be built up, and most of all, that you might be glorified in our time together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us sing together a song of praise and thanksgiving as we acknowledge that God has brought us safely through this past week, that God has provided everything we need and that He will continue to grant us what we need. We'll sing from number 320, if you have your Psalter hymnal, or the first song on your song sheet.
Beloved, our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and from Christ Jesus, our Lord and savior. Amen. We turn now in our Bibles to the law as it's recorded in Exodus chapter 20. There through Moses, we read that God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Beloved, this law, these commandments, they teach us how to fulfill the greatest commandment. Jesus taught us in Matthew 22. When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment of the law? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets are summed up in that, and the Ten Commandments fleshes that out. And together they show us, brothers and sisters, that we cannot stand on our own two feet. We can't approach God on the basis of our worthiness, because through that which we have done that God forbade, and that which we have not done that God commanded, we have revealed a lack of love for God. If we're to approach Him, our sins must be forgiven by another, be paid for by someone else, and we must obtain righteousness from a source beyond ourselves. And that can come only through Jesus. So let us confess together that our hope and our help lies not in us, but in the Lord our Savior, Jesus. We do that by singing number 110. This is a rendering of Psalm 62, and we're going to sing stanzas 1, 3, 4, and 5 as our confession of, of guilt, but also of reliance upon the Lord. Number Stanzas 1, 3, 4, and 5.
Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 1, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. What a blessing it is to hear those words. To know that even though we have sinned, even though we have transgressed God's law and we have failed to uphold his righteous standards... If we confess our unworthiness, acknowledge our rebellion, Jesus will cover our sins, He will remove God's wrath, He will give us peace, and He will intercede for our good. What a blessing. And in the light of that blessing, we can do no other than to come before God in prayer, acknowledging His goodness and asking His help. Now, as we do so... In the bulletin, we uh, note that Larry Angbers was admitted to the hospital suffering from bronchitis. Uh, we praise the Lord that he was able to return home on Friday. Um, however, because he was out of the cottages for a time, he's now in isolation for, I believe, 14 days. So please keep Larry in your prayers for not just healing, but for patience. And indeed, all of our members who are living in uh, nursing homes, assisted living facilities, Please be in prayer for them. It's, uh, it's very difficult to not be able to receive um, outside visitors. In fact, I would strongly encourage you to take the time to call some of our members who are living in those homes as well as our uh, members who live alone, single adult members, widows and widowers. Uh, they need to hear from you. They're, in many cases, isolated. Uh, some of them are getting out, but many can't. And uh, they need the encouragement of the fellowship of the saints. They need to be reminded that they're not alone. They've not been forgotten, that God and his people still love them. Um, In addition, we note in our bulletin that um, Charlie and Dolores Ross's sister-in-law, Dorothy, um, wife of Charlie's late brother, Jacob, recently was taken to be with the Lord. So uh, please keep the Russ family in your prayers as well. And uh, with that, brothers and sisters, let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, Your provision for us, Your wayward children, is great beyond all measure. You have given us the freedom and the reconciliation and the hope and the help that we could find in no other way. We stand humbled and awed at Your goodness. Because each time we read that law, Father, we're reminded anew that we're not worthy of You. That like all of our forefathers, we have fallen short. We have failed. We have broken Your law. We've lived in the midst of rebellion. We have... We have failed to uphold your righteous standards for which you made us. But we rejoice that you have promised that 
that if we confess our sin and if we trust in your son Jesus, then he will cover over our sin and remove your wrath and give us life and peace with you. Father, we thank you and we confess that it is in Jesus that we trust and in him alone. And we pray, Father, that any who are are hearing this service today, who are joining us from afar, who do not yet know you, who have not yet put their trust in you, we pray that you would work in their hearts to help them to see the misery that they, they live in in the midst of their sin and to teach them to trust in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would strengthen the faith of all those who have trusted in him, that each of us might be drawn closer, that each of us might be built up in you. Father, we thank you that you are the one who provides healing. We so desperately need to remember that in this time in which uh, a pandemic has taken over our nation and indeed many parts of our world. We pray that you would help us to remember, Lord, that you are the one who gives healing. And that even when you decline to give healing of the body, you use that sickness to strengthen the soul. That we might become eager to enter into the fullness of your presence. We thank you for the healing you've given to Larry. And we ask that you would continue to strengthen and encourage him in the days ahead. We ask that you would likewise provide healing and strength for others in our congregation and among our families who are suffering with various illnesses and ailments. And we ask, Lord, that you, that you are the one, that you would be the one to whom we turn whenever we're brought low physically or emotionally mentally or spiritually be with those lord who are isolated and cut off that they might know the joy of the lord that they might be encouraged by your people remind them of your precious promises that they might know that they're never alone because you are with them and lord we ask that you would speed the day in which we can welcome them and all of the the members of the church back into the sanctuary that we might gather together to worship you to lift up our voices on high. Lord, we pray for comfort for those who mourn. We think of the Russ family as they mourn uh, Dorothy's passing. We ask that you would bless them and strengthen them and that you would remind them that, that death has been conquered, that it has been overcome in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for those who struggle with depression and with anxiety and with other uh, ailments that are hidden but no less real for all of that. We ask that you would comfort and strengthen them, that you would provide for them as only you are able. And Father, we pray for our nation and for the nations of the world in the midst of this pandemic. Lord, this is unprecedented in our experience. And we ask that you would give healing for those who suffer but also that you would give wisdom to our national and state and local leaders, that they might do that which is wise to protect, but that they might not react only in fear, using the wisdom that you provide to enable the nation to continue and to survive through the midst of this. Lord, we're confident in your leadership, in your grace, in your wisdom. But we know that men are weak. 
and prone to herd mentality, prone to doing that which uh, public opinion warrants rather than Your wisdom. And so, Lord, we pray that You would grant the wisdom that our President and His advisors need, that our national legislators need and so often lack, that which our governor deeply craves and the governors of all of our states, that our mayor and local leaders also are in need of. And we pray that You would use them not just to stem the tide, the, the, the flow of this pandemic, but, but that the nation might begin to re, return to work. That normalcy might again erupt and that we might celebrate the opportunity to get back to that which we have lost. And Lord, we pray that You would use this strange time to bless Your people with a renewed appreciation for worship and for the fellowship of the saints. Lord, we, for too many years, we, the church in this nation, have scorned Your Sabbath day. We've worshipped But then we've gone about our daily business as though the day was no different than Saturday, no different than Monday. We've used the day for our pleasure, for our desires, for our purposes, rather than yours. We have shunned the fellowship of the saints, being quick to skip church, being slow to spend time inviting your people into our homes, into our lives to enjoy that time of fellowship with those whom You love. And we have set an example for the nation such that businesses and towns that once were closed on the Lord's Day to honor You now are wide open, including our town. People shop at will without any compunction, without any uh, pangs. They shop at the grocery store and the department store. They go to the restaurants. They enjoy recreational activities when they could be gathered with the saints. And Lord, we grieve. And we pray that You would make Your people to appreciate anew the opportunity to set all of that stuff aside and to focus their hearts upon You and to call their neighbor to rejoice in You. Not judgmentally, but but teaching them what a blessing it is to gather together with the saints and to worship. Lord, we pray that You would fill our hearts with that desire. And we ask, Lord, that You would watch over Your church in every place where it's gathered. We think of, of the saints in Ecuador, in Costa Rica, in the Philippines, and in other places where we support their uh, missionary works. We pray that You would bless and strengthen the saints in those places, that You would encourage the ministers to be able to proclaim Your Word with all faithfulness and joy. We pray, Lord, that You would cause Your people, falling upon their knees, to be the ones who turn this situation by seeking the help of the true King. And Lord, we ask that You would strengthen us and build us up through the preaching of Your Word today. Enable us 
to speak that which is faithful, or us as ministers, to speak that which is faithful and true. Allow your people to receive that word as a word from your own lips. And use it, Lord, not just to encourage us, but to send us forth well-equipped and eager to tell others what you have done and why it's so essential to our life. And Lord, we pray that you would bring us back here this evening, eager to worship you again, eager to close the day as we have begun with worship, with rejoicing, with, with hearing your voice. And Father, we pray all of this in the only sufficient name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen. Beloved, as we prepare to look together to God's Word, let us stand and sing from number 200, you can sit, I guess, at home, but number 218, My Steadfast Heart, O God, will sing all the stanzas of 218. turn in our Bible passages, or in our Bibles to our passage, Luke 24, I just want to acknowledge that we've been blessed over the past uh, month with volunteers from the congregation who've been willing to come and, and uh, step outside of their comfort zone and, and sing to help the, con- the congregation wherever it is found um, to sing at home. It's so much easier when you can hear it as well. Um, most of our singers have involved elders and their wives. Um, we've also had uh, deacons and their wives come up and, uh, and also multiple elders. We're so blessed by that. Um, to know that the leaders of our church are willing to stand forth and, and proclaim God's praises for the, the congregation. 
So we want to encourage you to, to do that at home, to sing God's praises openly. Don't be, be shy. Uh, so what if your neighbors can hear? They, they too might be inspired to sing praise to the Lord. We're, seeing, or we're, we're looking this morning at Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. That's toward the end of the chapter, one of the final sections in this gospel. And this will be our final section in this, um, in this series. But I'd like to read with you, beginning where we stopped on Easter Sunday morning. Uh, we heard last time how the women went to the tomb, did not find Jesus, but they did find a couple of angels who told them that Jesus had risen. And then coming back, they told the disciples what they had seen, what they had heard, and they weren't believed. But Peter, and we learn elsewhere also John, ran to the tomb, and they found it empty, just as the women had said. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then, they, then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company, who arrived at the tomb early, astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened up the Scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told, they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? 
So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Then he said, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved sons and daughters of God through Christ our Lord, Jesus has risen from the dead. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Death and sin and Satan are victorious no more. But now what? Now what? I mean... We should and we must believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And we must trust that His work conquered death and sin for us. Absolutely. However, is that the extent of it? Shall we study the cross and the resurrection just to find the blessing that Jesus earned for us? And then having been comforted, shall we go about our business as though nothing has changed? Years ago, when I was in seminary, I came across a book that was titled or subtitled Christian Hedonism. And that caught my attention because hedonism is a philosophical view that says that the highest good that a man can seek is his own pleasure or happiness. So Christian hedonism sounded like a contradiction in terms. Well, it turned out that the book was about our need to desire God and the things of God. And that, of course, is a very good thing. But my initial reaction got me thinking, how many people in the church are, in fact, living the life of a Christian hedonist? That is, how many people who call themselves Christians are really more focused on their future than the future of the world? Are not all that concerned about what happens to their neighbor? Are so focused on their here and now pleasures That they can't be bothered to cultivate a deep love for God, for His Son, for the church, for mankind. How many professing Christians are hedonists more than they are Christians? And how great is my temptation to prefer a philosophy, a worldview that is more reminiscent of hedonism than it is of Christianity? That question should probably make us squirm a little. After all, we live in a rich society, and few of us shun the riches of the world. Nor are we necessarily called to live the life of a monk. However, the stuff of this fallen world should not be what moves us, should not be what gets us up in the morning, should not be what thrills our hearts. We are not here in this world, ultimately, to enjoy the things of this world. God has given them to us as a blessing. We should, in fact, delight in His gifts for us, no doubt. But that shouldn't stand at the center and the heart of who we are and what moves us. God has left us here 
ultimately for three reasons. The greatest of, of which is to glorify Him. A second is that we might be well prepared for eternity. He's changing us, molding us, shaping us into the image of His Son. But He also left us here for the sake of a fallen world. He left us here. He's equipping us here so that we can bring the good news of the cross and the resurrection to others. He left us in the world for the sake of the world because apart from us, the world has no hope of finding true hope. And that is the calling that Jesus was preparing his disciples to take up in our text for this morning. Just a short time after he arose from the grave, Jesus prepares his church to proclaim God's peace to the world. And that's our theme. And as Jesus begins to prepare his church to proclaim God's peace to the world, he does so, first of all, by providing enlightenment of their minds. Look at what's just happened here. Jesus rose from the grave. The women went. They saw the empty tomb. They encountered the angels. They come back. They report what they've seen, what they've heard, the amazing thing they've experienced. And what do the disciples do? They refuse to believe. Their words seemed like an idle tale to them. Like a lie, like something fanciful that the women made up. Peter and John run to the tomb. They find it empty. But they're confused. They're not sure what to think about that. The two from Emmaus. Jesus encounters them. And they've heard about what the women saw and what they heard. And they remember that they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. That they knew that he was a prophet mighty in deed and in word. But still they're sad and they're confused. They haven't believed what Jesus has done. But then Jesus reveals himself to them. They dash back to Jerusalem. They tell the disciples who are gathered together along with the 11 remaining apostles. They tell them what they've heard, what they've seen. They hear how Peter has also encountered the Lord Jesus. And suddenly Jesus himself is there. But despite what they've seen, despite what they've heard, they're frightened. They doubt that this could be real. They think he must be a ghost. So Jesus says, no, touch me, feel me. Feed me something so that I can show you that I'm real, that I've truly risen from the dead. They must leave behind their doubt and begin to believe. And then Jesus addresses their unbelief, reminding them that they should have expected exactly this. They should have expected his resurrection. He says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. He had taught them all that must occur. He had warned them of all that he must endure. In fact... He taught them that everything must be fulfilled which God revealed about him in the Old Testament. It had to be fulfilled. It wasn't an option. Jesus asked his father back in the garden, if you'll recall, that if there were any other way, he prayed that the father would remove this cup of suffering from him. But above all, he wanted God's will to be done. And because God had willed for Jesus to suffer for our sins and to die... Therefore, God sent an angel to strengthen him. But again, Jesus had foretold it all. So Jesus points to the scripture. He says, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
My friends, that threefold description, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that describes the whole of the Old Testament. The law of Moses revealed that that the Savior of Israel would be the one who would come as a son of Adam to crush the serpent's head. He would be a son of Abraham. Come to restore God's people to the Lord and to bring the blessing of Abraham to all the nations. He's the one who would come as the prophet greater than Moses. The one who would come as the great king, superior to David, who would establish the kingdom. The law of Moses spoke about how he would fulfill all of the sacrifices. How he would bring about reconciliation and forgiveness from sins. How he would cleanse us the way the priests must cleanse a leper who had been healed. And the prophets, they worked out the finer details of all of that. They told about his kingly reign, about his prophetic calling, about how the people were desperately in need of exactly what he would bring. So Isaiah spoke of the suffering servant. Micah spoke of of how he would arise from Bethlehem and nurture the sheep of the Lord. Zechariah spoke of how he would be received as king as he entered Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. And how he would, as the shepherd, be struck and the sheep would be scattered. Time and again, the prophets declared all the fine details of what Jesus would come to do. And the Psalms, they they led Israel in singing the song of the Savior. Psalm 2, leading them to sing the song of the King from heaven. Psalm 110, leading them to sing of their great high priest. Psalms 22 and 88 and many others, singing of the suffering that Jesus must endure. All of this and countless other prophecies, images and promises... Jesus had to fulfill in order to firmly establish God's Word. And He did it all perfectly. He did it all perfectly. Understand, that means that the Old Testament and the New are not separate, unrelated accounts. Some people have thought that in the past, that that there needs to be a great, big, solid page between Malachi and Matthew. Because the Old Testament, that was for the people before Jesus, and the New Testament, that's for His people now. But that's not true. All the Old Testament pointed forward to Jesus. It's what He came to fulfill. It's what He came to complete. And all of the New Testament describes how He did that in fulfillment of God's good promises. That means, brothers and sisters, that the disciples then and the disciples today can look to all of God's Word with confidence because all of it points to Jesus. All of it shows us our hope. And so we can see that God is 100% faithful. He told His people in exquisite detail exactly what the Savior would come to do. And then in Jesus He fulfilled every last detail of that prophecy. Nothing was left undone. Nothing was left to complete. And that means we can trust Him. We can trust His promises. We can trust His commands. We can trust Him. thing is, Jesus had already told His disciples all of this. Just in Luke's account, He told them about His rejection by men. His death and His resurrection in chapter 9. And then again in chapter 18, He recounted all of it again with even greater detail. John tells us that just before the end, He told them for their assurance of what He would suffer, what He would endure. And then He said, These things I have told you that when the time comes, 
you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now, now he says, I go away to him who sent me. In other words, he was telling them before it happened, so that when it happened, they would know that he was truly from God, that he was in fact divine, and that they could trust everything he spoke because he did exactly what he foretold. He was the true prophet. Thing is, they didn't understand at the time, did they? They heard, but they didn't grasp it. The words fell upon them, but the meaning was lost. And so Jesus, He empowers them to understand. Verse 45, He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Now notice what we see there. Jesus alone is able to enlighten us to understand the Word of God. He alone is able to clear away the darkness from our heads and our hearts and fill us with light. He can give us insight that no mere man can master. And that's a crucial gift for His disciples of every age. It was His gift for which the psalmist longed and prayed in Psalm 119 when he said, Open my eyes that I may see the things from your law. He was the one who enabled the disciples to comprehend His parables. And... And Paul asserts in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, It is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God through Christ alone that allows us to understand the Word of God sufficiently to believe in Him. And that's what we need. Of course, we need salvation from Jesus. We need perseverance. We need daily provision and eternal provision. We know that. But in order to take hold of all of that, including salvation itself, we need faith. And faith requires understanding. And understanding we can have only through Jesus. So we need, just as they needed, the enlightenment of Christ into what He has done for us. And therefore, brothers and sisters... This isn't the main application of this text, but it's certainly an important application. We need to be praying daily for the insight, for the understanding, for the enlightenment that only Jesus can give. We need to study God's Word. We need to hear faithful preaching. We need to discuss the Scriptures always with that prayer in our minds, in our hearts. That God would make our Scripture reading effective by enabling us to understand. That God would... would Bring the preaching home to our hearts by the work of His Holy Spirit within us. That He would allow us to both receive and give insights in our Bible study by His enlightenment. We must constantly be asking for His insight, for His guidance. And then we need to honor Him when we receive those insights. Acknowledging that that came not from us, but from His help. Well, why did the disciples of old need so desperately to understand what Jesus had said? I mean, obviously, we all need that as, as disciples, as followers of Christ. But did you notice how persistent their unbelief was? Even though Jesus told them repeatedly what he must endure and also that he must rise on the third day, they didn't believe the women. They didn't believe the empty tomb. They refused. Even when he finally appeared before them, their, their initial reaction was unbelief. Their initial reaction was it must be a spirit. 
And so Jesus addresses that unbelief because they have a calling to fulfill. They have an important, essential calling for the sake of the world. And they can't take up that calling unless they understood what Jesus has done and why he had to do it. And so our second point, Jesus grants his people an explanation of God's purposes. He grants his people an explanation of God's purposes. Verse 46, Jesus says, thus it was written and thus it was necessary. Hold that a minute. He's reminding his disciples that what he's about to say comes from the scriptures. It was written. God inspired Moses and the prophets to record his will. And the scripture is trustworthy. What it says is true. What it promises will come to pass. Therefore, it was necessary. The Greek word there, dei, it's emphatic. These things must be done because the will of God cannot be broken. And then Jesus goes on to summarize what it was that was written and that was necessary to be done. The first part relates to the work he just finished. The Christ had to suffer. He had to endure intense suffering, not just of the body, but of the soul. He had to be able to say with Isaiah chapter 50, The Lord God has opened my ears and I was not rebellious. I did not turn away. He gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. It was only if he endured that that Jesus could say with the following verse, The Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He will not be ashamed because the work that he came to accomplish, saving his people, establishing his kingdom, would be fulfilled through the work of suffering that he endured. Jesus came to fulfill the fullness of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He had to be the one who was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He had to be the one whom we despised and did not esteem him. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Because by his suffering, the wrath of God, our sin was atoned for, our debt was paid. It was necessary that he must suffer and then that he must rise from the dead the third day. In the suffering of Jesus, our debt is paid. In the rising of Jesus, our life is secured. This was the sign of Jonah, who was cast into the depths, buried in his rebellion and sin, but who then after three days was brought back into new life that he might serve the Lord. Only by Jesus' resurrection on the third day could we be assured of life and peace with God. All of that Jesus endured. It was done to perfectly fulfill the requirements God set forth in his word. It was done to perfectly meet the needs of fallen man. But that's not all that the Father decreed concerning His Son. Jesus had accomplished what was needed to secure our peace. But now it was necessary that the word of that accomplishment might be sent out to all the elect. And so He says that repentance must be preached in His name. Folks needed to see, needed to learn that they face a choice. Either they can continue, persist in their rebellion and their unbelief. And in doing so, remain enemies of God. Or they can acknowledge that their sin is a prison that will destroy them. That it is an offense that sets them 
opposed to God. And they can cast off that sin daily, daily turning away from it and turning back to the Lord. People everywhere need to hear their need to repent of sin for the sake of Jesus. And then they need to hear of the remission of sin that he has accomplished. Only if sin is remitted or removed, its debt paid off, its power in us broken, only in this way can we have true freedom and true life and true peace with God. But men cannot have it. We cannot have that peace unless we hear what Jesus has done. And therefore, it is necessary that it must be preached. And it must be preached properly. It must be preached in His name. Jesus alone, says Acts 4, verse 12, is the name by which we must be saved. And Jesus Himself said in John chapter 3, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus must be preached as the sole source of forgiveness and reconciliation, life and peace. And it must be proclaimed, this gospel in the name of Christ, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the people of God were centered. It's where God revealed His Word. It's where He had set His presence. It's where atonement was made. And so the word must be proclaimed first there. But then having been proclaimed there, it must go forth into all the nations. God promised Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And that's what must now happen. And folks, understand, this, this all was just as necessary in God's decree as Jesus' death and resurrection. By the preaching of Christ formally by those who are ordained in the church to that task, but also informally through the testimony of the saints, by the proclamation of Christ's death and resurrection, His peace is spread throughout the world. But without the proclaiming of Christ, man has no hope, no life, no peace. That is God's purpose. It was His purpose for For the disciples of old. And it's also his purpose for us. This is our calling. We, you are called. To declare the message of Christ. Broadly. We must teach all who will hear. To recognize and reject their sin. To see that Jesus has fully fully paid the price. For their sin. For their debt. To seek forgiveness through Jesus alone. And to trust Him, knowing that His resurrection is what secures our life eternally. Apart from that message, man has no hope. But by that message, by the explanation of God's purposes, men can have life everlasting. And that, my friends, is our purpose. It's one of the chief reasons for why God has left us here. He wants us to declare to them, to those who don't yet know, that hope is found in Christ. Thing is, it's too big, it's too daunting a task for us. So Jesus reminds us what His disciples were given. And then He equips His disciples, both those back then and those today, to use what He has given. And so our third point, Jesus is equipping emissaries of God's peace. He's equipping emissaries. Kids, you know what that word means? It means those who are officially... uh, called and equipped to go forth with a message. That's what we are as disciples. 
We're emissaries of the gospel. And he's equipping us to serve in that way. Speaking to his disciples back then, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. They were witnesses in a unique way because they had seen. They were present when God's word was being fulfilled. They were able to testify from a first-hand knowledge of what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. I mean, consider, they lived with Jesus. They saw how perfectly he obeyed God's law. They heard his voice as he explained the scriptures and how they must be applied. They beheld the power that he exercised in healing the sick, in restoring sight to the blind, in cleansing the leper, even in raising the dead. They were able to testify to to who and what he was And they had a front row seat to his suffering. They saw how the leaders of the Jews hated him. They watched the unjust trial. They stood in the crowd as Jesus suffered on the cross. They beheld the evidence of his death. And now, now they were seeing his resurrection. They saw evidence that it was impossible to deny Jesus had returned, a victor or the grave. And as his witnesses, these folks were both able and called to tell everyone what Jesus had accomplished. But not by their own strength. See, they were, they were too frightened to be able to do what they were called to do. And they would get more frightened because the leaders of the Jews would exercise all of the power and authority they had to silence this message. Moreover, they were too weak to speak the word that must be spoken. They didn't know what needed to be said or to whom or how. They needed God's wisdom for that. And so Jesus promises that he would equip them. Behold, he says, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. What exactly is this promise of the Father? It's really a a fairly broad statement it includes the power that will be endued that by which they will be endued from on high but it's broader than that isn't it this promise of the father it's the promise that god gave to adam that he would conquer satan and sin it's the promise that he gave to abraham that he would bless all the nations, that He would be their God and they would be His people. That It's the promise through Moses that a prophet would be raised up through whom the Word of God would come with perfection. It's the promise given through David that a king would be establishing a kingdom that would never end, that would outlast all of the kingdoms. It's the promise through Jeremiah of a restored and perfect relationship with God by which we might have peace that is greater than anything this world has known. All of that is involved in the promise that the Father accomplished through Jesus, which He was giving to His disciples. But above all, it was the promise that He would give them the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God living with them to equip them for the work to which they were called. And brothers and sisters, that same promise and that same equipping is given to us. We too are called to be witnesses of Jesus and what He has done. Not because we saw and heard Him firsthand ministering in Palestine. But because we have seen. 
how he is continuing to exercise his power and to fulfill his promises among the saints today. You have seen in your own life, if you're a Christian, how he has begun to conquer your sin and to bring about holiness within you. You have seen, if you are a Christian, how he has given you newfound understanding in his word that fills you with joy. You have seen how he's able to give you peace and comfort and strength in the face of situations that that most folks would expect to, would be your undoing. You have seen in the life of your fellow church members how God has been healing and strengthening and restoring and renewing. You have seen the continuing work of Christ through His people and now you are called. You are called to testify that all of the word here is true. All of the promises are faithful. And His power is just as real now as it ever was. We are called to be witnesses to a watching world. Not just the elders and the ministers. They're called to equip you for that work. And He has promised to give you power to do it. To give you the Holy Spirit by which you have courage to speak. To give you the Holy Spirit who imparts wisdom to your words you my friends have seen you have received now will you respond will you proclaim the peace of God through Christ to the portion of the world God sets before you at its most direct that means will you speak to your children boldly and broadly or to your grandchildren telling them so that they might Never doubt that Jesus did this and that you need Jesus and this is what it means to you to to explain that all to them. Will you speak to them? Will you speak to your neighbor? Getting to know them, loving them, showing them the love of God and then when the opportunity arises and God will bring the opportunity if you ask for it, explaining to them where your hope lies. Will you tell your co-workers? Will you tell your longtime friends? Will you tell them the most important thing they will ever hear? You must. That's why we're here. And a greater privilege than that calling cannot be imagined. So let us ask God to give us wisdom and courage and opportunity that we may declare the greatest message that man has known. And then, confident that he has heard us, Let us proclaim the peace of God through Christ with every opportunity God provides. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are excellent in all Your ways. And we pray that You would indeed give us the courage and the wisdom and the opportunity to proclaim the promises of God fulfilled in Christ to those whom You set before us. Teach us to live a life that cultivates in them a willingness to hear, knowing that, that we love you and that we love them and that we're different because of your work within us. And Father, we pray that you would make it our joy to be your emissaries, to be proclaimers of your peace. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let us sing together number 412 from our Psalter hymnal. I love to tell the story, and we're going to sing all the stanzas of number 412.
we, uh, we give of our tithes and our offerings, our offering today being for the Christian Education Assistance Fund, um, again, we would encourage you to engage in this part of worship also by either mailing in or dropping off on, uh, on our office days your offering or, uh, or simply going to the website covenantpella.org and, and uh, contributing through the link the deacons have set up there. But let us show our gratitude to God for all that He has given, for all the provision that He perfectly sets before us. And our doxology for this morning is number 361, stanzas 1 and 4. you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.